Welcome to the Bristol History Podcast with me, Tom Brothwell. The Bristol History Podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Bristol Cable. The Bristol Cable is a city's media cooperative owned and created by local people. This week, I went to the Bedminster factory of Cameron Balloons and spoke with company founder and ballooning pioneer, Don Cameron. Hot air balloons have become a staple part of the Bristol skyscape and sit somewhere alongside Banksy and the suspension bridge in the picture postcard image of the city. Cameron Balloons is one of, if not the, largest hot air balloon manufacturers in the world and was founded by Don over 50 years ago. It has played a huge part in the growth of ballooning in subsequent decades. I asked Don how his passion for ballooning began. Well, I was uh, very much interested in flying as a as a young lad, and uh, I did aeronautical engineering at uh, university. And then um, I got a job in, with the Bristol Aeroplane Company in Bristol. That was what brought me to Bristol to start with. Being in the gliding club, I had done gliding, and uh, prior to that, I had uh, flown in the University Air Squadron, the, the RAF VR unit. Prior to that, I had flown in, uh, in the Air Training Corps at school. And uh, I managed to secure a flying scholarship to learn to fly on tiger moths. Flying, and I was into model aeroplanes when I was younger. I was also a member of the gliding club at uh, Nymphsfield, just north of Bristol. A few of us got talking about balloons one evening in, in the bar, naturally enough. People ask me how I got started, and I usually put it down to drink. Yes. Well, it really came up from that one conversation. And I remember one of our members of our syndicate who Giles Bulmer, who was a member of the cider-making people, yes. he produced a, an American magazine, the National Geographic, which showed some of this ballooning happening. And that was really the start point. We were talking about the new kind of ballooning that had just been devised in the States, the idea of having a, a propane burner and a, and a nylon envelope. These are still the elements of the modern hot air balloon today. Mm. A group of us got together and, and built one that was called the Bristol Bell. And yeah. that was the first modern hot air balloon in Western Europe. The first manned flight in a hot air balloon took place in France in 1783 in a balloon designed by the Montgolfier brothers. It was thought sufficiently dangerous that a number of unmanned and tethered flights were first made, and the first passengers of a hot air balloon flight were not human, but a sheep, a duck and a rooster. French King Louis XVI had originally decreed that condemned criminals should be the first human pilots, but eventually it was decided that physicist Jean-Francois Pilatre de Rosier and the Marquis Francois Laurent d'Alonde 
would be the first recorded humans to make a free, that is, non-tethered, balloon flight. Modern hot air balloons, with an onboard heat source and a nylon envelope, were developed by American Ed Yost in the 1950s, and it was following up on these developments that Don Cameron and fellow members of the Bristol Gliding Club designed the Bristol Bell, which, as Don says, was the first modern hot air balloon in Western Europe. The first flight of the Bell was made on the 9th of July 1967 from RAF Weston on the Green, near Bicester. I, I guess there's a sort of romantic image of the, uh, if you're talking about the first balloon being in the 1780s, uh, maybe people are thinking of sort of wicker baskets and a flame in the middle, uh, and like you say, these um, that the canvas is, did you say paper and, and cloth and things yeah. like that? So with the Bristol Bell in 67, how does that look in comparison? Are we still talking about a basket? Yes, it's still a basket, and in fact, we still use baskets to this day. Mm. But uh, the envelope was of, uh, of nylon fabric, fabric for spinnakers, because there was no balloon fabric in those days. So it was uh, very, in many ways very similar to the balloons we make today. We still use wicker baskets. The, the big ones do have steel reinforcement in them, yeah. but uh, we're still using willow and cane. It seems to have persisted. We've, at times we've tried plastic alternatives, mm -hmm. and um, they're never quite as good. You said you were sort of interested in ballooning and you decided to, to, to construct this balloon with, with some colleagues. Was that, at that stage, a serious, did you think this is a, a professional choice? Oh, no, we didn't, uh, didn't at that stage think it was a business to go into. Mm. We had a habit in the gliding club of forming a syndicate to own a, a glider. I was a member of a syndicate that did own a glider, so we formed a syndicate to, to make this balloon. I remember them saying that the, one of our members who went to open the bank account said the bank manager said how delighted he was that in these times of crisis, and it was yet another time of crisis, that there were people willing to invest in such a thing. My understanding is it's quite soon after, or, or early 70s, that, that you found your own company. Yeah, 1970 was the registration, and I guess it was uh, unincorporated. We were working a bit before that. I mean, we're in this big warehouse space at the minute, but presumably you need quite a big flat area in terms of constructing canvas for a, for a balloon. Yes, uh, <clears throat> in fact the, the sewing area is on the top floor mm -hmm. and it's a big open area mm. and unlike any other business that does sewing where they usually have the machines closely spaced making clothing or something, mm. the machines are spaced very widely apart to give room for the, yeah. for the growing balloon that's being constructed. And so, for the 70s, you, you, you started this, this company. You're thinking this is potentially a, a, a profession. You're presumably doing a lot of ballooning as, as well? Yes, I'm doing a lot of balloon flying. Mm. Oh, in those days, I was doing it at least once a week. In the last year, I've only done it a few times because of the pandemic and everything, but I do like to keep my hand in. Yes, and do you always need a, a crew of a few people to do it? Yes, ballooning is a, is a sort of social thing because it is possible to balloon solo, but it's, it's, a, it's a bit of a stretch. In fact, it's, it's better to have more than one person in the balloon and then, of course, someone has to drive to pick up the balloon at the end of the flight. Just as a sort of rough layman's guide as to how ballooning works, you can control 
your altitude, but you can't control much more than that. That's exactly true. The the, the only uh, difference is that there are often different wind directions at different heights. So on a on a bit of a wedge, you can diverge a bit, so you can steer. And in fact, they, they run balloon competitions where they'll put a, a target across out in the countryside and the pilots will fly five miles to get to it and some of them will drop the marker within a metre oh, really? because of the skill at using the, the winds at different heights to steer. But presumably nowadays you can get quite sophisticated data about those winds. I'm guessing in the 60s and 70s it was a bit more... Um, the, the weather forecasting is better now, but mm. when you're flying the balloon, the best data is, is what you're experiencing. You, you notice as you fly higher or lower that you're making a different direction. So there's a, there's a skill in just picking the right height and getting, getting the right trajectory to fly in on your target. But it's, it's not always possible. When you're, when you're looking for a landing in a balloon, you're, you're looking for something that won't upset any landowner, for example, you don't land in animals or crops. And you can always get a good choice because if the landing you're lining up for turns out not to be so good, you just fly on and look for, look for something else. And to go back a little bit to, to the company of, of Cameron Balloons, so you were founded in uh, 1970, as you said, and then you, you moved sites once before you moved to, to this site. I was wondering about the relationship with, with Bristol. Is that just because you happened to find yourself in Bristol? You mentioned you were working for the, uh, was it the Bristol Aircraft Company? Yes, I think, um, I think it just happened to be that we were a bunch of friends who got to know each other at the gliding club originally. Mm. But then um, when I started the business and started to employ people, of course you employ people from not too far away. Yes, yeah. And pretty soon, uh, in fact, we, we started in a church hall in Cotton and um, we became too big for it and that was when we moved here and uh, I remember I had to do quite a poll of all the people who worked for us to say how is it going to work out for you to to work in Bedminster because it was a little bit of a trek. The Bristol International Balloon Fiesta has been going since 1979 and become a much-loved part of the Bristol cultural calendar. Notwithstanding the Covid interruptions of the past couple of years, the Fiesta regularly hosts hundreds of flights and can attract crowds of over 100,000 people on each of the four days that it runs. Yes, the the Balloon Fiesta was uh, the first significantly large balloon event in in the UK. The Fiesta is organised by a non-profit making company And uh, we have a few volunteer uh, director committee members of that. And um, I sit on that committee. And we start talking about next year's fiesta the moment the previous one's finished. I think the combination of the factory and the balloon fiesta has made people in Bristol very familiar with balloons. And the symbol of Bristol has almost become the suspension bridge with a balloon flying above it. I think this may have been from Wikipedia, but it said in 2007, but of... 1,500 of registered balloons in the UK, over 1,000 were from Cameron Balloons. Well, I'm sure that's right, yes, yeah. we're the biggest in the UK and, and uh, we have been the biggest in the world for a long time. Don has accomplished a number of outstanding achievements in the field of hot air ballooning. 
He was the first person to cross the Sahara Desert in a balloon, the first to cross the Alps, and he made the first flight between the UK and the Soviet Union back in 1990. In 1978, he and co-pilot Christopher Davy made a remarkable attempt to be the first people to cross the Atlantic, a distance of almost 2,000 miles, in their hot air balloon, Zanussi. Don told me more about that attempt. I had thought it possible, but it's something that a number of people had attempted and failed. Right. I thought it could be done, but I, I, I was somewhat discouraged because a friend of mine called Malcolm Brighton, he had attempted it and he'd not only failed, but he'd been lost in the Atlantic. So yeah. it was a, a very uh, unpleasant story that. Taking a lesson from that, we did think we could make a a balloon in the form of a boat which was completely enclosed and would be a survival capsule and that we could uh, also fly the balloon. And the the principle of the heated helium balloon makes possible great durations. We crossed the Atlantic in four days on that occasion and got within sight of the coast of France. We hit bad weather and we didn't quite make it. Finished the journey in a French fishing boat. Don and Christopher started their journey in St. John's in Canada on the 26th of July 1978 and covered some 1,780 miles over the next four days, but had to ditch on the 30th of July in the Bay of Biscay, only 110 miles from France, after a tear had developed in the balloon. As Don says, they were picked up by a French fishing boat. Theirs was the 13th time in history that humans had attempted a transatlantic crossing in a hot air balloon, and at that point was by far the closest to succeeding. Just three weeks later, an American craft, the Double Eagle II, made the first successful crossing. Don did, however, eventually make a transatlantic crossing in 1992, when he flew a balloon of his own design from Bangor, Maine, to Portugal, and won second place in the first ever transatlantic balloon race. I asked Don if he'd ever felt in any danger during his feats of ballooning. The whole idea is to design them to take the risk out, but um, whether you've been successful, you find out afterwards. Now, ballooning is is a very safe way of travelling because the the systems are simple, so there's less to go wrong, and, uh, of course, the speeds are low. Don Cameron R650 Rosier type combination helium and hot air balloon that was used by the Breitling Orbiter team in 1999 to complete the first ever circumnavigation of the globe in a hot air balloon. I asked Don about the current projects that Cameron Balloons was involved with. We've constructed a, a balloon for a high altitude flight which we're just about to export to Russia. We're going to attempt a, a, an altitude record with it and that of course is designed to go to an altitude where the atmosphere is only three or four percent of what it is here, so very thin air. So that means you have to have a much bigger balloon. Right. So okay. the balloon we've constructed is actually the biggest hot air balloon that's ever been made, and it carries a, a pressurised gondola, which is really like a high-tech spacecraft. It's full of uh, full of gauges and switches inside. We, we, we certainly have people pushing the limits. We built the only balloons that have succeeded in flying around the world. We've done this three times now. Yes. The last one was a wonderful Russian guy mm-hmm. called Fedor Konyukov, 
and um, he's very famous in Russia uh, as, a, as an adventurer because he's done all kinds of things. He's been up Everest, he's sailed around the world. He's, he actually rode the Pacific Ocean last year. It took him about four months really? to row from New Zealand to South America. And uh, so he's a great adventurer. And he is now planning to fly a, a double trip around the world. So he, he'll, he'll take off from Australia, fly around the world, and when he gets back to Australia, he'll keep going. For that, we're, we're also constructing a pressurised gondola, although it won't be quite so extreme because it will go up to where, where the airliners fly, where there, there's maybe 30% of the atmosphere left, not, not 4%. And in, in building these bespoke balloons, do they have a, a life afterwards? Are, are they the sort of thing that are used for one trip and then they're done? For anything as major as that, mm. um, Sometimes the, the balloon that I flew to Russia, mm. we, we sold to some people in Spain and they used it to fly from uh, the Canary Isles to Venezuela. So uh, that did two trips, but mostly they go into museums or something after something as fantastic as flying around the world. I note here that something you, you, you won in 1999, the Harman Trophy for World's Outstanding Aviator. Yeah. Yes, that, that was a great honour because uh, there are some really important people who have that trophy, the, uh, Charles Lindbergh and, mm. and uh, the various pioneers of aeroplanes. That was for devising the, the world's first hot air airship. I mean, it was obvious it wasn't an invention because there were gas airships and mm. gas balloons and hot air balloons and a, a vacant slot, really. It means making it elongated mm. and putting a propeller on it and making it stable with fins so that you can drive it along. Many thanks to Don Cameron for speaking with me this week and for showing me around the Cameron Balloons factory. And many thanks to you two for listening. If you've enjoyed the podcast, then please subscribe and give us a good review on iTunes. And if you have any ideas for subjects of future podcasts, you can email bristolhistorypodcast at gmail.com. <laughs>